Welcome to episode 67 of Kyperion Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. You can download our episodes on iTunes and Google Play and a host of other uh, media sources. And we will be delighted to hear from you. Again, thanks for tuning in to Kyperion. Uh, our guest on this episode is Dr. Uh, Matthew Colvin. He is a presbyter in the Reformed Episcopal Church. Matt is the author of a recent book entitled The Lost Supper, Revisiting Passover and the Origins of the Eucharist, published by Fortress Academic this year. Matt, uh, welcome to Kyperion. Thanks. It's a joy to be here. Thanks, Yuri. You're welcome. I also want to welcome you to the Kyperion team. Uh, for those who are listening, Matt has joined our uh, KC team, and I know our readers look forward to his contributions. Matt, let me begin with a fundamental question here, which is uh, struck me right as I read the cover of your book. This book is called The Lost Supper. Uh, when did we lose it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm reminded of the narration in The Lord of the Rings. Some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. One of the chapters in the book is entitled Mechanics and Misinterpretation, and it, it really gets into what if if the Lord's Supper and the last the Last Supper are not understood in a Jewish way, uh, if they're not in a, understood in a way that was available to first century Jews like Jesus and Paul, then we're going to start understanding them in other ways. And I would I would agree with the reformers that uh, much of the groundwork for that misunderstanding gets laid in the medieval period by people like Pescasius Robertus or Thomas Aquinas applying Aristotelian philosophy as a way of explaining how the supper works and what it does. Um, to my mind, these, these alternative methods of, of explanation, they're like explaining a wedding cake by recourse to quantum mechanics. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what sort of thing we're thinking about and how it works. Very helpful. I think we'll touch a little bit on that as we go along and the, the details um, of uh, the Eucharist itself. One of the central texts, which is uh, so fundamental, is Jesus' statement and appears in Luke. Uh, and the statement is simply, this is my body. Now, unfortunately, you are um, a student of history. Unfortunately, the interpretation of, the interpretation of those four words that were essentially divided the Reformation's efforts at a united front. And one of the fundamental divisions stemmed from the nature of Christ's presence, the meal itself. As uh, you know well, one of my mentors, uh, Keith Matheson, has written significantly about this in this book, Given for You. Both Luther and Rome, though they differ on important elements here, affirm the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And so one of the questions that came as I, I read through your book is, do you affirm the real presence of Jesus in the supper? And if not, does that make you, do you fall into some kind of Zwinglian memorialist view? Okay, that's a great, a really great question. Um, and you, you put forward several different things that I need to address here. One is the words, this is my body. Those are the, the words uh, that are respond. They lie behind the English hocus pocus because in the Roman Catholic Mass, hoc est corpus is the Latin translation of those words, and they're thought to be the moment at uh, which the transformation of the substance of the bread into the body of Christ takes place. Um, Luther took those words very seriously as part of his respect for Holy Writ, and at the, the Marburg Disputation between him and Zwingli, 
the Reformation suffered a terrible wound, in my view. I think it's one of the great tragedies of church history that Zwingli and Luther could not come to agreement about the presence of Christ in the Supper, about how the yeah, Eucharist works. Um, and if, if they had, we would have had one united Reformation. N.T. Wright has pointed out, and others, that at that disputation where, where Luther wrote, this is my body, on the table, and so emphatically did he view those words, uh, at that same disputation, there was another scholar uh, in the Reformation. Uh, his last name was Hushine, uh, Oikolampadius, and he, perhaps uniquely among the people in the room at the time, knew Aramaic and Hebrew. And his knowledge of Aramaic helped him to realize that, well, you know, the, the word is that Luther is underlining, hoc est corpus, this is my body, or as I've heard others advocate, other advocates will say, is means is, as Pascasius Verbotus in the medieval period said, he, did, he didn't say it's a mere figure of my body, or this is the virtue of my body, it is my body. Well, Hushan said, or Orkelampadius, that word's not there in Aramaic. Mm. So, and if you think about it, the, the statement that something X is Y, very rarely do we interpret such words as uh, setting up an ontological or metaphysical equivalence or identification. Especially, especially in Jesus' gospel accounts. when he Right. Um, there, was a, there was a little ditty designed to be a response to this sort of real presence language. Tis true that Christ by figure said, this is my body pointing to the bread, just as he said in parable before, I am the vine, the rock, the way, the door. But these mean not, nor any proof afford, that Christ bore grapes, was stone, or made a board. <laughs> just as absurd this figure could design that Christ had made himself a bread and wine. So, Diddy from the Protestant Almanac of 1841. So, I, I'm kind of with Oikolampadius on this point. Uh, it, it's not good interpretation to insist upon a metaphysical identity um, or a, tr a transformation. Uh, but on the other hand, when theologians these days talk about someone being a Zwinglian, uh, they mean that the supper is a mere memorial, or as I like, as I like to call it, an edible flashcard, that it works, <laughs> it works by you thinking about it. And, and that also, uh, is to be rejected because it's not the way Jews would have thought that this meal was working. And uh, what I argue in the book is that Jews celebrating a meal that originated as a Passover have in the Passover a model for understanding how it works. And it works by involving them in the events of the salvation that it celebrates. So the, the dictum of Rabbi Gamaliel that's recited in Jewish Passover celebrations to this day, this Paul's teacher most likely, uh, is that every man who partakes of the Passover is bound to regard himself as if he himself had personally passed out of Egypt. So that the Passover is a way for Jews in later generations or in the land to um, share in, participate in, 
the events of the Exodus under Moses. And when we look at the way Paul explains or conceptualizes the supper, we find that he uses some of the same sort of language. The bread which we break, is it not, my Lutheran friends might want to complete that sentence by saying, is it not the body of Christ? But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, is it not a participation in the body mm. of Christ? No, no, that's helpful, which implies, of course, and Paul, that there is a, a sociological communal dimension to Paul's words, right? Yeah, um, that's that's how the Passover worked. Uh, mm-hmm. It was to be celebrated by Israel as a people, as a community. Uh, and, and we lay stress upon everyone is to partake. Everyone is to eat this unleavened bread. Everyone is to eat this, this roasted lamb. Um, the Jews had legislation. They were very concerned about the participation of the whole community. Even the, even the poor, the Mishnah required, this is later, it's rabbinic rules, but I, I think the rabbis were in tune with the Bible's concern with the involvement of the entire Israelite community. Um, even, a, even the poorest man must be given four cups of wine to drink at Passover um, mm. in order to share it. One of the nicer points that I, I appealed to uh, in order to underscore this was the fact that Paul refers to the Lord's Supper and to our participation in it by reference to the table. Right? You cannot share the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Right? You cannot share the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Um, our participation in it is referred to metonymically by the cup that gets passed around, the table that we're sitting at. These are the instruments of our communal participation. Um, and what we, we are commanded to partake. If we are cut off from the community, then we don't partake. That's what excommunication is. Um, every circumcised person was to partake. Your whole household was to partake. We must go with our young and our old, with our flocks and our herds, for we're to celebrate a feast to the Lord. That's the paradigm in the Old Testament of what the Passover was, and it provides us a good paradigm for what the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is in the New. Matt, where has the Reformation failed to carry that principle consistently in the New Testament? Because what we see in the Passover meal is this uh, inclusionary concept where there is a great fear that people be left out. And uh, you talk about this uh, towards the end of your book. When we come to the Reformation's view of who is included and who is excluded, obviously there is a, 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 a great debate within the Reformation tradition that has gone the other way, where they say there are certain individuals, certain people, specifically uh, children that are to be excluded. So a, a two-part question, where do you think historically the Reformation the Reformation abandoned that consistency? Uh, and secondly, uh, where, where does Paul connect these two ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as you know, I'm a paedo-communionist, and I think most of the other guys at Kuyperian are. Um, and in a, in a way, this this entire project of mine, this whole book, could be conceived of as Jim Jordan and Peter Lightheart's Pater Communion 
meets N.T. Wright's historical Jesus. That That's really what <laughs> drove the whole project. Um, that's a great recipe. <laughs> so where where did the some of the reformers go wrong? Um, uh, you may be familiar with the Mercersburg movement, Philip Schaff. Um, yes. And John Williamson Nevin. Nevin. And Nevin has some wonderful things to say, defending John Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I, I think I would see myself as in a fair amount of continuity with, with Calvin's view. If you have to pick between Luther and Calvin, go with Calvin on this point, um, that you are, you are really sharing in Christ and all his benefits. Um, it's, it's not an empty memorial. Calvin is not a Zwinglian. Um, on the other hand, Calvin also is not endorsing a view of so-called presence where Christ's body and blood are just statically on the table, uh, there to be adored or worshipped or lifted up and carried about, as, as the 39 articles forbid us from doing. Um, so there's, I think, in Calvin's view, a healthy concern with real sharing in Christ. And I discuss in, in the, the chapter on misinterpretations that some of the Puritans go off the rails on this. Uh, William Perkins and William Bradshaw uh, mm-hmm. really unpack, I think, a, a not very biblical view of the supper working by our thinking about it. And, and I think we've all seen this in certain churches. Um, I, I, I refer to uh, Presbyterian potato bugs, right? <laughs> men who are so concerned with their own interior thoughts and meditation because that's the way they think the supper works, that they're curled up in a ball, uh, not looking at their neighbors, not joining in a communal feast, um, sealed off in their own interiority. And I I think that all stems from some unfortunate misinterpretations of 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that the, is is it not, do this unto my memorial or um, let a man examine himself. Um, which is a verb that I devote some some time to unpacking. That's not a good translation. Um, it doesn't refer to introspection. Um, the, Paul's concern is rather that the community, it's, it's back on the community emphasis again, Paul's concern is that the community behave as a community, as the people of God. Uh, the, the overarching conclusion for which he's arguing in 1 Corinthians 11 is when you come together, wait for one another. Don't, don't gorge and get drunk apart from the poor. Don't have two separate suppers. Um, if you're just greedy and need to and need to eat, do it at home. Um, don't despise those who have nothing. So yeah, it works in um, a horizontal dimension, uh, sociologically, by the unity of the people of God. Right? When you when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat if you're not unified. Um, and I point out in the book that this. This is also how the Passover worked, that God made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. And when he sent his his destroying angel to to bring his judgment and affect the exodus, uh, it was the people of God being unified in eating this feast and marking their doors and lentils, uh, doorposts and lentils with the blood of the lamb um, that separated and distinguished them from from the Egyptians. 
And so that also is what we're to be doing. Um, we, as the people of God, all, all baptized believers should be partaking of this supper uh, and thereby sharing in the salvific, salvific events of Jesus's death and resurrection, participating in the events. At one point, I say that the problem with real presence is that it, it stops short of, it's not enough. It stops short of the biblical ideal, the biblical teaching of what the supper does. And that's that we are in Christ. We are experiencing his death and resurrection. Um, and it's, it's both reaching back into the past to connect us to what happened to Jesus on the cross and, and three days later, uh, and also reaching forward into the future to the fullness of our experience of that in our own personal bodily resurrection. Yeah, so the supper has a, uh, an eschatological dimension to it, of course. Yeah, and that's that's very consistent with a Jewish way of thinking about how Passover worked. And it points back to Egypt, but it also points forward, Jews Jew, Jew, right. to this day, uh, and, the, and their Passover celebration with next year in Jerusalem. And looking forward to eschatological rescue and salvation. Right. So the the beauty of this participation is that we are tasting, uh, we could say simultaneously, of the past, the present, and the future. That is a, a, a very different and holistic way of looking at the supper as opposed to simply offering uh, metaphysical categories. And th- I think that's something that came, that struck me through, uh, as I read through your book. Sure. Um, before I do that, let me go back to something you were saying there um, about, yes. about the difference between this diachronic and, and eschatological um, salvation history-based view of how sacraments work versus a, a sort of static metaphysical presence. Um, to my mind, I think it was N.T. Wright, he said, uh, the Lord's Supper ought to be celebrated narratively. That is, it, ins- it inscribes us into the narrative of God's people Israel, and in, which is summed up in and encapsulated in the person of Jesus. Um, this is the solution. Cutting This is the cutting of the Gordian knot or, or the, the reconciling of two poles in, in Protestant sacramentology, what we might call sacramental Christianity and then the emphasis on the word. Um, And all all too often, those poles have been at odds with each other. And it's needless. If we are to, if if this meal inscribes us into this Messiah and and the events that took place in him, um, then the way we know those events and that Messiah is by the description of him in Scripture. And and, and so there should be a sweet concord and a, a kiss between word and sacrament, which is a very Calvin based idea. Now, right. to your right. more recent question now. Um, you're right, I didn't make this up. Um, but I, I can claim to have independently been put on the path of discovery. Uh, I, I am married to a Jewish lady, and I have a bunch of unbelieving Jewish in-laws. Um, and they were kind enough to include me in a Passover celebration at one point. Which I respect, and this is not a, this is not a messianic Christ, uh, messianic Jewish or, or Jewish Christian celebration. This, this was just a, an actual Passover, uh, and so I'm sitting there as a, a Greek PhD student, <laughs> knowing at this time I knew no Hebrew whatsoever, and the words they're saying all the Hebrew prayers, and the, the words are just washing over me. And at, at one point, 
um, this one word pops out, and it sounded Greek to me, afikomen. I said, wait a minute, it's a Greek word. What's that word doing in his, his Hebrew prayers? And, and then that set me on the path of doing some research. Could that be a Greek word? What does it mean? And when I did the research, I discovered that uh, in the 20th century, both in the 1920s, 1926 and 27, uh, a Jewish scholar named Robert Eisler had first proposed an interpretation of that word, um, which nowadays is applied to a piece of unleavened bread, matzah, in the Jewish Passover. Uh, and he suggested that that word actually referred to the Messiah, that afikomen is a Greek word, and it means the coming one, or I have come, uh, which as we know from scripture, John, John the Baptist asked Jesus, and Jesus from prison, are you the coming one? Using a different word to come, not the same word, but nonetheless, that, that term, the coming one, seems to be an eschatological title for the Messiah. Um, that, that suggestion met a great deal of opposition in the 1920s. Uh, neither Christians, especially Lutheran and Roman Catholic Christians who were committed to their own traditions, sacramentologies, and explanations of the Eucharist, they couldn't accept it. And also Jewish scholars were not very happy with the idea that Jesus at the Last Supper was taking up an existing piece of bread and using it to identify himself as Israel's Messiah. And Jews, Jewish scholars were not all that enthusiastic about anything that makes the New Testament more obviously Jewish and that underscores the Jewishness of Jesus. Now, we've seen some, some calming and cooling of those tensions over the years. Um, in the 1960s, the great uh, Jewish scholar of the history of law, David Dauber, uh, who was a refugee from... Hitler's Germany and settled in the UK and became a uh, professor of law at Oxford, uh, he also revived uh, Eisler's theory and removed some of the bad arguments that Eisler had used for it. For instance, Dalvin did not suggest that we need to say that the piece of bread Jesus took up was called Afikoman, right? that that might be a later rabbinic label uh, for, for a piece of bread standing for the Messiah. Um, and, and he advanced several good linguistic and um, what we may call ritual historical arguments. Um, for me, the best argument that Dauber gave for, for this view that Jesus was operating with a, an already existent Messiah ritual that was part of the Passover in his day, the best argument he gave was that um, Jesus could not have, um, at the same moment, taken up a piece of bread, identified it with the Messiah and with himself. That, that's just too much. Uh, that's not how rituals come into being, out of whole cloth that way. It's far more likely, especially in light of the fact that we don't get any uh, expressions of, of incomprehension from Jesus' disciples, when he says, this is my body, they don't express any puzzlement. Uh, later on the, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus breaks bread, that's when he's known 
um, that's when his, his disciples recognize him on the road to Emmaus. So it doesn't seem to have been a, a mysterious thing. Uh, Paul doesn't treat it as a puzzle or a mysterious thing. The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So everybody knows this, right? according to Paul. Hmm. Um, so that's sort of the, the account of my independent uh, interest in this matter. And uh, when, when, Darbe, when I read Darbe's article, uh, I found it pretty persuasive. Um, there have been some other scholars over the years, Deborah Bleicher, Carmichael, um, Mona Hooker and her husband, David Stacy were also both interested in it. I would love to sit down with N.T. Wright and ask him what he thinks of it, because I think mm. it fits very well with his treatment of the Last Supper uh, in Jesus and the Victory of God. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic background. And uh, we'll hope to put some of these links available in our notes afterwards, people who would like to pursue this subject further. Uh, let me conclude just with uh, a couple of questions here that delve into the practical dimension of your thesis, which I think is important. And it comes up uh, towards the end of your book. Um, it's, this is the beauty of the book is that you dealt with uh, a lot of the technical, uh, the rabbinical background and the Jewish uh, rites and feasts. Um, it's very heavily footnoted. So this is a, a, a well-documented book. But in the end, you kind of delve into some pastoral concerns on, on how-tos, for example, of the supper. And so one of the questions that I think comes up very often, especially in a very, I live here in the south, southern part of the U.S., with a very memorialist approach, which is, I would say, by far the um, predominant view in my culture here. The question is, what do we do? Of course, there's a question of frequency, which happens uh, at least in the more evangelical churches, you know, once or twice or maybe three times a year. The question is, what happens in that moment? And I'm sure, Matt, you and I have probably been in experiences where um, the experience of the supper felt very funeral-like. <laughs> and so uh, my question for you is, what should someone participating in the Lord's Supper be doing and thinking as they're walking and as they're journeying through this, as we mentioned, um, timeless ritual, a ritual that encompasses the past, the present, and the future. How would you sort of practically advise someone as they're going through this uh, this event? Yeah. Um, one of the things I think should be done is that Christians should be looking at each other. <laughs> you are, you are uh -huh. saved in this ritual. You are saved as a body that is celebrating the communal feast. Um, you are saved as a member of the people of God. It's not about you and your interior thoughts. Um, and so you're also saved by connection with the events that happened to Christ. Christ and his, Christ's body is inscribed into Christ's death and resurrection. That's what's going on in the supper. Um, and so it's wholly appropriate for us to be reading uh, the institution narrative from 1 Corinthians. Uh, to be looking back at Jesus' institution of the Supper, to be calling to mind his death and resurrection, um, always with the caveat that the Supper does not depend on our thinking for its operation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so if you have mentally disabled members of your congregation, if you have very young members of, this, of your congregation, then you involve them in the feast because they belong to Jesus too, and, and they are, they're part of the body. We don't say, I have no need of you right. uh, to those who are elderly or senile or, or mentally disabled. 
suffering some other mental handicap, um, we treat them with love and respect and we involve and include them um, sociologically, the way we would involve them in, in a wedding feast, uh, in a graduation party, and, and some other festal occasion to which they have been invited. And that, that's really the biggest takeaway that I was trying to, to leave everyone with in that last chapter. Um, if we've argued, as I, as I did in the rest of the book, that Paul thinks this works as a Jewish festal meal, then our ways of reckoning participation and our horizontal attention um, and the way we treat the elements uh, and the involvement of children, all these things are questions that should be settled on that basis. We should think about them the way we, do, we would at other feasts. That doesn't mean it's just another feast. Obviously, um, the events that it applies to us, the, the Savior that it makes us part of, um, those are very special and distinct from all other feasts. Um, but nonetheless, it operates as a feast, not as medicine, not as metaphysical transformation, not as an occasion for us to do theology in our heads or to meditate. Um, all of these are, are inappropriate. Um, so yeah, that, that's my main prescription. Feast, celebrate as the mm. people of God. Mm. Dr. Matthew Colvin is the author of The Lost Supper, Revisiting Passover and the Origins of the Eucharist. Matt, this has been a, a, a wonderful time. It's been a, a wonderful and enlightening book. And I really hope this conversation will uh, help others as they think through this very, very important issue, an issue that I think is not only what we call in the Reformed tradition a means of grace, but the, the very sustenance and nourishment of the Church of Jesus Christ for the people of Jesus Christ. Matt, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Pastor.